Hi, everyone. This is Stephanie Rupert. Thank you for listening to the Meaning of Everything podcast, where we rethink, we feel, reimagine, gain a deeper understanding of the types of things that matter most. Today is episode number eight, where we have on Stephanie Sassy, a woman who is founding initiatives left and right to help us create a less biased and a more communicative world. Uh, so I am super excited to have on Stephanie. I first met her through a network, actually, of really powerful women in San Francisco, and it was such a delight to chat with her. She is a very creative individual thinking outside of the box, and she works really deeply on issues having to do with science literacy and information exchange. And I know that that sounds very abstract, but basically what it means is her vision for what we need in the world is to overcome like our, our problems with our biases and our, prom- our problems with um, thinking, you know, in groupthink or circular thinking or um, not really engaging like everybody, right? We're too partisan, we're too biased. Uh, and so she works to help us unravel these problems uh, to try and create a world where we can have more civil discourse, where we can enjoy our communities better, where we're not so divided along partisan lines, but also many different kinds of lines, you know, religious, not religious, Democrat, Republican, what have you, right? She's trying to help us talk to each other, which I think is incredibly important, perhaps our most important task in the West right now. Um, and so I'm, I'm hugely honored to have her on and to uh, consider her a colleague of sorts. Um, I want to read to you her bio because it explains to you a little bit more precisely uh, what she's done and uh, what she'll be able to tell us here today. Uh, really brilliant woman. Stephanie Fine Sassy is a writer, organizer, and designer. Trained in neuroscience and psychology research at Harvard University, she has co-published on human development and decision-making in leading academic journals, created and taught award-winning courses on information literacy and science communication, and spearheaded nationwide campaigns to increase diverse representation in and of STEM fields. In early 2017, Stephanie joined the March for Science in San Francisco and Washington, D.C., where she helped organize a movement that mobilized over one million supporters around the world. She subsequently co-authored Science Not Silence, a collection of science advocacy stories released by MIT Press. In addition, Stephanie conceptualized and produced the Signs, Science, Government, Institutions, and Society Summit in Chicago in July 2018, which brought community leaders together to discuss equitable evidence-based policy. Most recently, Stephanie founded The Plenary, most of what we'll talk about today, a nonprofit educational design studio that marries art and science to create nonpartisan experiences for adults to learn about current issues such as human bias, health, sustainability, and social change. So that's really exciting. Uh, I'll bring on Stephanie in a minute. I will give you a few of our show notes per usual. I'm super, super excited to be here today. The podcast has now been out for four or five weeks. Uh, I'm still pre-recording, so technically I haven't gotten any feedback from you, but what I've noticed, a few things that I'm trying to do is reinvigorate uh, these discussions. I want to, I know that we have been very academic to date. I want to let you know that there will be a lot of discussions that have to do with uh, policy that have to do with our personal 
lives. I'll bring on people with some really profound stories about their personal transformations having to do with uh, really deep themes of love, loss, uh, wrestling with existence and death and all of these sorts of things. So hopefully I'll be able to create a picture, create an experience that is deeply rigorous in its intellectualism and deeply smart while at the same time really uh, deeply felt and engaging and interesting. So um, more of these guests forthcoming, although we do continue to, um, you know, tend to, tend to be a little, tend to be a little cognitive. And that's why, of course, also, uh, in addition to these interview episodes, I am spending 15 to 20 minutes every week uh, talking about, uh, again, stories, narratives, how these ideas can, if we talk about complex ideas, how they can be implemented in our lives and all that sort of stuff. And those are labeled X. So there will be an 8X after this episode and um, all episodes there will be an X. There are many different mediums that you can engage this uh, podcast there is, of course, the Apple stuff, the iTunes stuff. You can find this on Stitcher and Spotify. And also, if you want to watch, you can watch on YouTube. You can see our faces, the cool stuff I'm doing with my hands right now, um, which is really exciting. And I'm really glad to be able to do that and reach you know, everybody wherever they're at. You can find the show notes for each episode at my website, which is stephanieruper.com. Uh, every episode is uh, stephanieruper.com slash the number of that episode if you're looking for a specific one or slash podcast for all of them. Uh, and if you want to be entered, I've been talking a lot about how I'm giving away books once a week. I will be announcing winners once the podcast begins to air. Um, and you can enter that drawing, that drawing. If you go to stephanieruper.com slash book giveaway, you'll find the details there. It's really easy. All you have to do is write a review of the podcast, take a snapshot of it and email it to TMO everything at gmail.com. Uh, that's TMO everything at gmail.com because as it turns out, the domain, the meaning of everything is really, really expensive. So we're going with Gmail and that's just, that's just how it goes and hopefully it helps. Um, so that's kind of all of the shop stuff. As always, uh, I am on Insta and Facebook as Stephanie Rupert and I would really, really welcome you uh, reaching out to me with any opinions you have, any kind of feedback or what have you, because uh, this I want to make really, really nice for you. Uh, so that's it for our stuff. I will talk at you more in the next episode. For now, I want to get right to Stephanie because she's brilliant and you're going to love hearing from her. So um, here she is. Welcome, Steph. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. Yeah. How are you? I'm doing well. Nothing to complain about. I can look out right now and I can see the San Francisco Bay. So it's a pretty day and there's not what we call Carl the fog out right now. So you named the fog. I didn't personally name the fog. <laughs> Who named the fog? The people, the people named the of fog. San Francisco. The people of San Francisco. Okay. Wait, but this is just astounding to me because I've spent a fair <laughs> bit of time in San Francisco and nobody's ever been like, so Carl's here today. Yeah, I mean, it's completely possible that people have been trolling me for the past two years and there is no Carl. <laughs> that makes more sense. Is it Carl with, is it Carl with a C? Is it Carl, is, are there Carls with a K? I don't know, but Carl has a Twitter account. Oh, then follow Carl. Then Carl does exist. Carl's an entity. He does exist. I think he's an entity. Do you know what the, what's the Twitter handle? I do want to follow Carl. Carl the Fog. Hold on. Let me check for you. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's Carl the Fog. And speaking of entities, on a quick side note, 
um, Carl the Fog. No, I'm gonna skip up on that effort. No, it is. It's it's Carl the Fog. Yeah. Awesome. It's a, everybody is like Carl with a K, but with 10% more drizzle. I'm so glad I asked about the spelling. Okay, first follow <laughs> me, then follow Steph, then follow Carl. Carl the Fog. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Actually, order of operations. Follow Steph, who, by the way, I introduced to Stephanie, but Steph. Follow Steph, and then follow me, and then follow Carl. No, <laughs> Carl, then Steph, then me. Okay. Um, this is sponsored by Carl the Fog, just to clarify. Yeah. <laughs> um, as you can tell, Steph and I, uh, Steph and I go way back, a little bit back. We go a little bit back, um, and she's funny. She's really fun to talk to. Um, we'll get, we'll get a little bit serious. Um, tell us, tell me, um, I introduced you a little bit, but who, you know, what are you about? Uh, what, what are you up to in the world? What, what sort of impact are you trying to make and, and why? Sure. So I, it's, it's interesting to try and figure out what labels to put on yourself. I don't think I've quite found what labels I want to put on myself. The closest would be to say that I'm a writer, an organizer, and a designer. And designer in sort of the broadest sense of the term. I'm interested in designing live experiences for people more than anything else, designing resources and opportunities for people. Um, and so I'm formerly, originally, neuroscience and psychology researcher. And um, so I sort of started my professional world asking questions about how people work uh, and then getting more and more curious. Every answer I got led to another question, as I think happens to a lot of us, uh, and I ended up in neuroscience. And, uh, and then once I got to neuroscience, I started getting frustrated because I felt like what we were learning in the lab wasn't finding its way out into the real world. Yeah. And uh, so I started to sort of examine those, the space in between science and society a little bit more and try to understand uh, what some of the barriers were there. And I have to say, I started out with these big ideas about how we were gonna fix this, we were gonna build bridges, we were gonna do this and that, and um, realized pretty quickly how much work has been done in this space and just how robust the scholarship is, decades of people trying to attend to this problem. So I got, re that actually made me more interested. I was like, okay, why is this such a, why is making sure that science has a place in society and in our individual lives such a tough nut to crack? So I spent sort of the past five years or so simultaneously one leg in the research lab and then another leg in experiment world, like real world experimentation. How do we uh, how do we close that gap? What works? So I did a ton of workshops and courses and we designed a web platform to try to encourage scientists to share their work with the general public. We did SciComm training, all sorts of different approaches and uh, really used these, these decades of research from science communication studies and public understanding and engagement um, of and with science, all of these different sort of subfields that have focused on these. We try to use that knowledge to create a model uh, and evaluate it every step of the way. Um, and the, the interesting thing was things went pretty well. It was like we had some great, was some great efforts there, sort of experimenting with what worked. But the interesting thing was that uh, about two years, a little over two years ago now, uh, we decided to do a fundraiser 
for this organization that we'd started to, to sort of host these experiments and try to solve this problem. And I remember sitting with the, uh, this woman named Amber Boyd, who is an artist and educator that I met in Cambridge. And um, we were talking about doing this fundraiser for what was then called the People Science. That was the organization that, we, that we'd started. And we just sort of threw the rule book out because we knew we wanted to do a gala to do a fundraiser. And so we're like, okay, we're not gonna base this on anything. We're just gonna try and create a space that is an amazing time for people and that people will enjoy. Uh, and we want to sneak some learning in too. So we picked a theme. We decided on human bias, that that was going to be the theme of the event. But really, it was a fundraiser and a gala more than anything. And in some ways, that kind of gave us freedom and flexibility to play a little bit with the way that we were constructing this learning space. And we did play, we did. We brought in artists and um, designers and technologists. And we created this wild experience for people uh, where it was 25 exhibits and it started with super fundamental biases like things like how your eyes can distort information create optical illusions things like that up through more complex information filters and how your identity interacts with information and how framing works all of that jazz and then ending with more complex sort of emergent biases uh, at the social level like prejudice and, and perpetuation of power hierarchies and things like that anyway much to my surprise, it was far and away the most successful thing that we'd ever done in terms of engaging people and making a really meaningful impact. Uh, you know, the other things that we'd been working on were fine and had value, but this, this struck a chord. And I certainly didn't, I didn't see that coming at all. Uh, and over the past two years, we've been sort of pivoting our model to serve people in this way that's so engaging, that's much more sort of participatory um, and, and sort of falls into this, this category in science communication right now of um, scientists understanding the public just as much as the public understands science and stepping away from what's historically been called the deficit model. So anyway, that's sort of like a, a medium length summary of how I got to where I am right now and, and what's next. So. Wow, yeah, so the deficit model, there's been some sort of disconnect, right? Like the how then like do the scientists misunderstand and and what does this understanding then mean that you have to do right you were talking about fun so like do scientists need to understand that people learn better when they're having fun what is it that is missing in that understanding yeah that's a great question so the deficit model uh is a term that's used to describe this assumption that uh sort of the institution that scientists or that um, science communicators sometimes even, not always, there's definitely a shift there, but have about the public that, oh, all we need to do is sort of fill the public up with knowledge and that'll fix our issues with public understanding of science. If we just, if there's a deficit in the public and if we just fill them with what we know, that'll, everything will be better. And that, was, that started several decades ago uh, and people researched it and they're like, okay, yeah, that doesn't work. Doing this sort of fill, up, fill people up with knowledge method doesn't really work. After that, uh, people were like, okay, well maybe it's skills. Maybe we need to just fill people up with skills, scientific literacy skills, and that'll solve everything. Uh, it didn't work either. Because again, it was just one more iteration of this deficit model approach. There's a deficit in the public that we just need to fill. And the big shift point came uh, within the, the sort of scholarly community uh, when we were like, okay, well, maybe there's not a deficit in the public. Maybe that's not the crux of the problem. Uh, maybe it's an interaction effect. Maybe it's about relationship building. 
Uh, and I think that's very, very important. So the, the research world, the people that study these interactions have been aware of that and the importance of building relationships for, for a long time. Uh, the problem is when I started doing scientist communi science communication training with scientists, uh, when we talked to them about their assumptions about how to communicate with the public, it was clear that that scholarship and that sort of uh, scholarly understanding of what to do hadn't made its way to a lot of scientists. And, and they had still internalized this deficit model approach, even if they didn't know the word for it. So they were still thinking, oh, I just show up in a space and everyone listens to me. And then I did my job. I did my outreach for the day or for the year, whatever it is, my broader impact. Um, and, and so that's, that's, a, that's a big problem because then if, if, you, if people are, or if scientists are engaging with what they think of as outreach and it's, in some ways, even reinforcing the, the distance between scientists and the public, uh, it's, a, it's a loss on all sides. Um, so, so I think that the, the restructuring that has to happen, the, the sort of mindset shift that has to happen, it has to be about relationship building. It has to be about true engagement um, and, and I think authentic engagement. Uh, and we, we talked a little bit about psychological accessibility uh, in the past. And I think that's such an important part of this is for the public, and the public, I just as a quick clarification, the public is a million different things. I don't mean to sort of collapse the public into like, there is this one entity that is the public and this is scientists. Of course, it's so much more complex and the way that you interact with, with different members, it's just like people in general, the way you interact with a given person is completely different than someone else. Um, and that's the important thing I think is making sure that the community has a say in the way that scientists are involved. And the way that science scientists do outreach, that they're an equal stakeholder in that relationship. So, does that make sense? Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's that's actually really really good, and I, I find it very fascinating that we've seen this sort of shift happen in a lot of different realms. Yeah. Uh, for example, in economics, for ages, scholars and what have you thought that people were rational actors and mm -hmm. kept trying to model the stock market and they, they were wondering why they couldn't. And finally I figured out, oh, it's because we totally misunderstand the human. And yeah. <laughs> uh, completely, you know, and, and that's because all of these people, all of the scholars are very rational minded, the economists, you know, they're very rational and calculative. And so they can think about themselves as participants in game theory, you know, but not all people are as addicted to, like a logocentric, sorry, it's a philosophical, whatever, you know, a logocentric, a, a very ordered world. Uh, and another world I've seen that happen in is in nutrition. Like nowadays, there's sort of this movement to realize that giving people diets is not the same as creating a way to eat that's psychologically yes. sustainable. Right. Totally. And that's actually, actually, that's the work that I do in, in eating and health and uh, and all that sort of stuff. And so it's super important. And that is actually the piece of what you did that first really hooked me because you said what the other kinds of accessibility information is now technologically accessible and financially, was it financially? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. So, so those models are different from yours, right? What are the models that exist? Those are like online learning sorts of things like YouTube. Sure. Things. Yeah, so financial accessibility is can someone, and it's exactly what it sounds like, can someone afford the content, the information? Uh, and there's a lot of movements right now to make sure that information is more affordable. There's still a lot of barriers. There's still a lot of paywalls which block people from being able to get access to sort of our, our collective research canon. 
Uh, and, and then there's, but there's a lot of, of open science movements happening, people working on that space, people doing things like nerd nights for free, things where they were signed to show up at a bar and talk about their work uh, and, not, and that not costing anything. Uh, and so that's great to see. There's also with technical accessibility, it's like, okay, how do we break it down, break down the language? So it, it, it's, we're not speaking a different language because that's the thing is like, it's not, people often confuse jargon with science being hard. Really, it's just learning another language. People are, are speaking in, in terms that they also had to learn. Before. It's not like they just came out talking that way. So I think that uh, making sure that the language is, is uh, broken down in the same way that, that, um, that the scientists had to learn it. Uh, when they're talking to the public. That's technical accessibility. Also making sure people are um, invited to get the skills necessary. Um, so that's sort of the, going back to the scientific literacy bits and things like that. Uh, that's all the technical. Can I technically access it? Also general accessibility, like is it in a space where people of all abilities um, can physically be present um, or engage with the content is all sort of the technical accessibility. The psychological accessibility is something we added uh, that we felt captured this um, this other element that's often overlooked, and I don't want to say it always is, because there's definitely great work out there being done that is very designed to make science more psychologically accessible for, for more communities. But for me, psychological accessibility is about making sure it feels like science is for you. Um, right now, there's so many communities that when science is, first of all, science has not always been the good guy. That's for sure. Uh, there's a long, gnarly history of science as an oppressive force throughout yeah. society. And because of that, you've got communities that don't, there's no, they don't feel safe. They don't feel like science is necessarily safe for them, rightfully so in many cases. There's other communities that have internalized the sort of um, images that, that media has presented of what a scientist looks like and acts like and who can and can't be a scientist, which is typically sort of like the Sheldon Cooper types um, that we think of when we think of scientists. And, and sure, that's real, but there's also a huge range of anybody can be a scientist. I think that we see that now um, and we don't necessarily have that reflected in our media as much as we should. It's changing, but gosh, I'd like to like turn that dial to a hundred if I could. Um, but so there's, there's representation can be a psychological barrier to science. History, uh, his, his sort of historical oppression can be a psychological barrier. Um, just not feeling like science is for you, feeling like science is too hard. Science definitely is a branding problem in our society where people think of it as a subject in school as like a, a type of person rather than a, a sort of strategic curiosity where we are all coming together and we've all decided, okay, this is a good way of trying to approximate truth given the current methods that we have available. And that's something that should be a service to society. Um, but our incentive systems right now in, in science don't always fit that. Um, anyway, so that's a long-winded way of saying psychological accessibility is really about making sure you're designing spaces with the um, with the community in mind first and building out around that what do people love what do people already love to do what makes you feel safe what makes you feel included what makes you feel welcomed uh, and that can vary from community to community but making sure that uh, those questions are being asked and and that you're creating spaces that are um, are built on on relationships and built on mutual respect and awareness so that might mean making sure you've got Art there, making rebranding it, not calling it science, making it more of a, an inclusive party type event. It might mean um, having it be more more uh, emergent, where it's discussion driven instead of uh, somebody at the center of a lecture hall. Um, it might mean sort of embedding it in 
uh, cooking class. It, it could mean so many different things depending on, on your audience and your community. But it, it's really, I think, more about where you're anchoring your um, starting point than anything else. Yeah, I, it just occurred to me, this is a little bit of a non sequitur, but something that you talk about a lot is knowledge and a phrase you use is collective knowledge. Yeah. And I am always struggling with what knowledge is, right? Yeah. And we all wonder what, what do we know? What, how can we know what we know? How certain are we of what we know? So when you, you bring people to a space, what, what are you trying to, like, are you, you don't come and say, here is a truth that I'm trying to communicate to you, but you also have particular things that you know with some degree of confidence from say scientific literature, but you also want to involve people and empower their voices. And so what is this like concept of knowledge and how do we as a society discuss things or agree, right? Do you ever, do you try to come to some kind of agreement at the end of events or discussions that you host? How do we sort of navigate that space where we all have different ideas and probably ones that differ from science? Yeah, whoa, Oof. such a good question. And there's so many layers that I want to like, I know, speak to um, like 50 questions. <laughs> Sorry. Um, it's like, no, it's great. I love this. It's a fascinating question. I think about this all the time. And I honestly, I think the most important thing is I don't think that there's a right answer here. For, for me, there's a big difference between the sort of epistemological question of what is knowledge, which is fascinating and we do a whole, whole hour on that. Uh, but also there's a, with, with the plenary and with a lot of the work that I'm doing now, it's um, a big part of the question is practically speaking, what do we mean when we say knowledge? And um, for me, knowledge is information that has been rendered or structured in a way that is a few things that's, that is potentially useful, that is earnest. And when I say earnest, I mean there's a, a, an authentic attempt to reflect or describe some reality or some, some sort of approximation of truth. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's interaction based too. So I think that knowledge is, uh, information is floating around all the time, right? So like from, if, we, if we sort of were to reduce it to um, an analogy um, at the sensory level. So if we imagine our ability to sense the world, there's a million things around us at any given moment of, in time that could be sensed. It requires our presence and our sensory receptors to interact with that stimuli in order to create knowledge and to sort of, we then are processing that stimuli, we're processing that information and we're creating our own sort of construct of what reality is. It's never a one-to-one -one representation. It's always interpreted. I think knowledge is always biased and it's always an interaction between us and the information, the sort of like potential knowledge floating around all the time. Um, but I, so I think knowledge is a few things and I think that making sure we think of it as, as an earnest attempt to describe reality um, that is structured information that is often usable um, and that's changing, that's fluid. I, I think that, you know, when we talk about the knowledge of a, of a people historically, that doesn't necessarily mean that we still believe those things are true. That doesn't make it less knowledge when we look at it within context, you know? So that's one, so when we say collective knowledge, I think it's about acknowledging and, ref and sort of respecting uh, the different ways that we come to know something. And obviously my background is science. I have an anchor there. My background is also art. Uh, so I've, I've, been, I've been writing and, and designing and sort of engaging artistically with many forms for most of my life. And 
Uh, I think there's things that I've learned through my journey as an artist that are just as valid mm. to my understanding of many concepts as the things that I've learned um, through my training in research. And so a big part of collective knowledge to me is, re is understanding that knowledge uh, comes from a lot of forms and that by looking across those forms, looking across those spheres and identifying patterns and identifying conflicts, uh, we're a lot more likely to land on um, something useful, something we can actually affect change with than if we limit ourselves to one sphere of knowledge. So that's why with the, with the, with the events that we do, we're just as interested in having um, artists and technologists, educators, gosh, do educators know things that that learning scientists and educators, when they work together, it's so much better than either group working alone. Um, so we, we like to bring as many perspectives together on a particular topic as we can, um, because we, we believe that, that otherwise it's, it's knowledge wasted. I want, to, I want to get back to that, but you said something that I think is really important, and I want to highlight it, a question for you. Is it possible for, are there any unbiased people on the planet? No. <laughs> okay. I'm no way. I'm glad no. you, that was a nice reaction. <laughs> very, it's just very, it's very obvious. And I think it's a problem. I, I seem to remember talking with you about this some time ago. There are so many people on, on the planet. I try very hard to be unbiased, right? But it's, it's to think that you are unbiased is itself a bias, is it not? Oh my gosh, yeah. So that's one of my, um, I think it's like, it's one of my favorite ways to describe that show, the show that we did on bias, which we'll, we'll do another version of soon, which is that um, the bias, the biggest threat to society is not bias itself, but it's people believing their biases don't exist. Mm. And I think that is universally true. I think that <laughs> I, I think bias is step one, like understanding and recognizing our biases is step one because it's fundamental. I'm, I'm a big believer that the opposite of bias is not objectivity. Objectivity is an illusion. The opposite of bias is chaos because if you are going to make information usable, you're automatically structuring it. And whether you're structuring it just through your own mind, through your own experiences, or using some sort of system, model, institution to structure it, you're structuring it. And by structuring it, you're changing it. You're biasing it in some way. Bias isn't always bad. It can be horrible. But it's, it's in sort of an innate, unavoidable part of who we are. And I think one of the goals with the, with the show uh, was not to explain to people how to become unbiased. That's not a goal. We're not trying to teach people how to be objective. We're trying to teach people how to identify their biases so that they can navigate them effectively. Identify the biases, understand where they came from, understand sort of the systems and the structures in society that result in social biases. Also understand the structures of, of the human brain and the mind that can structure our individual experiences and bias those. I'm a big believer that uh, one of the shared mechanisms at the root of so many what I call people problems is a lack of understanding of how we work, of how other people work, and of how information passes, moves through society. Um, and bias is at the heart of those three things. Understanding bias is at the heart of those things. And yeah, that's it, what I think. About it really that. is. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's why this is why a big piece of the project of this podcast and everything is 
trying to understand who we are as a species and I, you know, why I brought up the economics and the diet stuff earlier, it seems to me so obvious that what we need is to understand how we work. And mm -hmm. I, I think you're absolutely right that the, the bias thing, you called it people problems and mm -hmm. to put a name to one, racism. And there are so many people in the world, I know so many people who would say, who there's an immediate defensiveness about the category mm -hmm. of, any, of, any, of any of these sorts. And uh, I think it's important to recognize for, for, for people, for all of us, for those who are perhaps being called racist and for those who are saying it, uh, it's important for us to understand that like you can still be a very well-intentioned person who has no overt negative beliefs about anything, mm -hmm. but still, right. We're all so subconsciously biased in all these ways that we don't understand. And so I really personally believe that teaching people about our biases, which is what you do and which is precisely why we're having this conversation right now on this show is fundamental to our ability to survive as a species. Absolutely. I completely agree. And, and I think it's really, it's, it's important cultural work in a sense, meaning it's not, I can, I, it doesn't matter. This is another good example of why the methods that we use to teach and engage and build relationships with each other matter so much because I can go on all day long talking to people about their biases and they're going to, they're because of bias going to shut down and I, I get it. I felt that way. My partner and I have had some really interesting conversations where I try to explain bias or his biases or my biases. And there's just bias is always in between it. In between us and uh, and I use that word loosely there's a million ways to define the term bias I use it as the way that the mind or society sort of renders or filters information that mm -hmm. takes it a little bit a step away from some like objective truth um, and and so I think for me a big part of that is shifting towards a culture that celebrates and values different things right now we we celebrate and value confidence mm -hmm. we are we reward confidence and that's such a dangerous approach to take because it means people are less likely to change their mind. It means they're less likely to admit when they're biased, to admit when they're wrong. It means they're less likely to sort of acknowledge the, the, what it means to be a full curious human. Confidence and is, is fine as part of a person, but when that's what we're like identify char charm and confidence, that's what we're rewarding. It kind of goes against um, what I believe are the the most important tenets of a cooperative society the confidence bit is really fascinating we it sort of plugs into our outrage circuits and our sacred value circuits and right all of all of the biases that we have and it's it's really problematic because if you take a nuanced view to anything like we're trying to do here you're going to have a really hard time getting people to pay attention to you. Yeah. You have any tips for how to make people pay attention to nuance? Yeah. Oh, that's such an interesting question. So I really believe that there are answers to that question sprinkled across different spheres that don't usually talk to each other. And that's one of the reasons why when we started um, looking at how to turn that show into sort of the core central part of our model as an organization, we wanted to make sure we were talking to marketers. We wanted to make sure we were talking to people who have sort of mastered the applied psychology uh, of the human mind. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a lot of people who've figured out how to distill really complicated ideas historically and make massive shifts uh, 
in culture. It's not always been, that's not always been wielded for, for good. Um, but it's certainly, the, the, no, there's a lot of, of knowledge out there about how to craft spaces, how to craft messages, how to frame. Uh, and I think that one of the most important things is just as we're trying to do with the shows themselves, where we were trying to anchor uh, in the participant, I think the same goes for the way that you talk about the messaging. What does the person already want? What does the person already believe? And when it comes to nuance, most people do actually see them. That's part of their identity. I mean, so much of this is just about our, uh, our sort of attempt to protect our identities and to confirm our identities. Um, and I think that when you speak to someone's identity and they, they, they see themselves as a person who is open, most of us see ourselves, maybe not everybody, but a lot of us see ourselves as open. And so when you tap into that and you say, okay, here's some ways that we can sort of give you an opportunity to express that openness, to engage with, with ideas and, and from across the aisle. You know, when I talk to people about the plenary and I talk to them about society, most people say the same things, regardless of where they are on the political spectrum, people aren't happy. Like a lot of people aren't happy. Maybe we, we see the extremes in media a lot, but I think that there's a heck of a lot of people in the middle across the spectrum that see themselves as open and curious and that want to affect change, but honestly don't know how to. There's, if you want to affect political change, there's more and more avenues for you to take. There's more and more clear paths to get involved and try to affect sort of macro power, macro level change. How successful that is is to be determined, but there's definitely avenues and paths for you to know what to do and where to start. Uh, a lot of people say to me that when we talk about culture and sort of our our shared tone in society of being competitive instead of cooperative, of misinformation, of, of, um, sort of rejection of, of, of different ideas and polarization, all these things, a lot of them are really unhappy and just don't know where to start changing that. And I, I think a big part of what we're trying to do is build a community that embraces people power, that embraces sort of the micro level impact that you can have on your immediate surroundings, the things that you do have control of. And so when people don't want to get involved politically, but they do want to affect change and make an impact in their communities, I think that using education and using your, yourself as an example of how to shift mindsets and how to be more open can be really powerful. So that's, we're trying to create tools and resources for people to do, people to be able to do that um, more effectively. So, wow, that was a long meandering answer to your question. But hopefully I got there. <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good answer. It's important. It's really remarkable. People's identities. You mentioned identity. Mm -hmm. um, how does that, how, how significant a piece is that of our biases and what we need to sort of look at, you know, especially today. Do you think it's, do you think that's how humans have always been? Or do you think today in the West, we're like a little bit more obsessed with it than is entirely necessary? <laughs> That's a great question. I think it's evolved uh, with society, but I think it's always been there. Um, I think it was from on an evolutionary time scale. I think it was really valuable to know who was part of your, once resources were scarce, who, to know who was part of your tribe, who wasn't, you know, the, there's so many um, sort of tropes along, along that path. Um, but I do think that, you know, the way that our brains evolved were, was particular to the circumstances that it was they were evolving within and and society as we know it now has been such a small blip uh in human history i don't think our our brains the things that the sort of instincts and the biases that were really useful at certain points in human history i don't know that we have been able to fully sort of modify and adapt them 
to the things or that we are cool today. <laughs> or, uh, or, or, or uh, much. <laughs> um, yeah, so I do. I think that some of these are, um, I always, I always mispronounce this word, but like some of the, the biases in some ways, maybe vestigial sort of traits from a time, yes, uh, from a time when they did have value and they did have use, when they were very useful for us to be able to quickly make assumptions about people. Um, identity, what that means has changed dramatically, I think, for people. Um, but that inner urge to sort of maintain consistency and safety in your, your uh, both personal and, and social space, personal role within society, um, as well as sort of your, your broader social groups, I think that that's had value for a really long time. Um, and that part of what the work that we have to do now is use what we know about the way the brain works to construct an environment that brings out our best selves. Like we are, we're all competitive and cooperative. We're all good and bad. We're all, we're all all of the things. Um, and when we know that we respond really strongly to different environmental cues and signaling, and, and we know how, how easily manipulated the brain can be, um, through historical cases, through scholarship. Uh, and I think it's really important for us to use what we know for good uh, and figure out, okay, how do we construct a society with intention? And how do we build something that is most likely to bring out the better parts of ourselves? Um, the ones that are, that are more aligned with health objectives that are, uh, bring us wellness and, and, and um, you know, general compassion and, uh, you know, I think everybody has defines good differently, but I think that there's actually a lot of overlap in that. And I think that um, the key to doing that is using what we know. Mm -hmm. um, like on a quick real world example of that, I eat chips like nobody's business if they're in front of me. Like if, if I have chips in my house, they're there for about two hours. I told my partner not to ever bring chips into our house. He did bring chips into our house on one, one occasion. He brought them in, brought in two bags of chips. They were gone by the time he got home that night. They were completely devoured. I was like, why did you bring chips? He's like, did you actually eat all of the chips? I can't, I can't, I just, I just can't even with, with, with chips. But here's okay. the point, I don't buy them. I don't buy them because that's the level of control that I have. If I don't have them in my environment, if I construct an environment that minimizes my risk, then I'm more likely to get the behavior that I actually want. Right. So it's kind of like engineering, engineering your environment, sort of designing your life based on, and it's a silly example, but it's true. And <laughs> I do the same thing, not chips, but there's yeah. a long list of things I do not buy. <laughs> right. And, this, and in, in, inherent to that is an understanding of your personal weaknesses, your personal tendencies, and, and sort of designing around that. And you're, I'm not pretending that I, I, I am, that I'm strong-willed in that space. <laughs> you know, it's, it, you have to have an honest and authentic conversation with yourself. I think we need to do that as a society. To have an honest and authentic conversation with ourselves about what we're good at, what we're not so good at, and to the latter, what can we build and design to minimize the harm that what we're not so good at can cause. So. That's brilliant. I just realized we've been talking for 45 minutes. <laughs> Doesn't it feel like it's been like six? Um, there was, okay, there was, there were so many things that I wanted to get to, uh, and you have such, such interesting perspective on all this stuff. Um, there were, I'll bring this up. 
There were on your website and the plenary has a, I'll link to it in the show notes. It has a very thorough website that talks about its philosophy about all these things. And Stephanie Steph has thought through these things really deeply. You mentioned six skills or mindsets that you try to cultivate or you think are worth mm-hmm. cultivating. Um, I wrote them down information and media something uh, literacy, self and society studies, historical awareness, and then being comfortable with complexity and uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we don't have time to talk about all of them, but is there one or two or a few that you think are particularly important and like why? Or maybe describe all of them a little bit, like just give us a preview because I think it's important to think about like what we, what we need, right? We've talked about mm-hmm. deconstructing biases, but what does that entail? That's a great it's a great question. I, uh, gosh, it's like picking, picking among your, your babies. Like, <laughs> I know, I know. That's why, that's why I then decided to phrase it as, or maybe give us an overview of why you chose these six. Why I chose the six. So it, honestly, it was a, it was a feedback loop, uh, in the sense that, you know, as we were going out and doing workshops and trainings and courses and things through the years, uh, certain patterns emerged. Uh, across subjects, mm. meaning what, whether we were talking about sustainability and GMOs, whether we were talking about climate change, whether we were talking about um, you know bias or or um, how to evaluate evidence, whatever the topic was, there were these six themes kept emerging as critical foundational skills, mindsets, dispositions, whatever you want to call them, to have in order to even start to do the content specific work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think so, uh, something that they all have in common is, it kind of goes back to what I mentioned earlier. One thing that they all point towards is, it's an understanding of ourselves, others, and information. Like that's really what they all touch on uh, in this moment in time as it relates to past moments in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what, what I mean by that is, we're talking about making sure that we understand, when we talk about media literacy, for example, that we understand where these systems came from, not just how they operate right now. Uh, and I think that's why it's hard for me to choose between them because that media literacy in a sense, it, it, it's not, it requires historical awareness to really understand it. Um, you have to understand, and I think honestly, if I had to, I'm not gonna pick one but I'm just going to mention that I think historical awareness is extremely important when we're talking about current issues, uh, especially when we're talking about issues that, that are easily um, minimized by people in positions of privilege Mm -hmm. uh, when they think, Oh, but here's all this progress we've made. So now compared to then is so great. So, you know, I'm having a hard time understanding what the problem is. Uh, And I think that historical awareness coupled with psychological literacy can be really powerful and self understanding can be really powerful. So all of those I feel like are more powerful uh, when married than they are individually. And I think that's why it's hard for me to sort of tease them apart because they're so integrated for me. Um, yeah. I think okay, so, yeah. So then let me ask you about the one that's closest to my heart, which is uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like one of my theses in, in my work is that we are, although we have more knowledge than ever before, and we did a lot of talking about knowledge, right? Although we have so much knowledge, I think we're actually faced with more uncertainty uh, as a species than we have been and about deeply important things. Mm. And I, my 
not just my feeling, but my research, my feeling and my research both demonstrate that this discomfort with uncertainty, like it's inherently uncomfortable for people, right? Like all of yes. the studies demonstrate. Crazy that, studies, totally. <laughs> like you shock people. Right? <laughs> I was like, I'd, I'd rather be shocked than not know when I'm going to be shocked. That's what it's the studies so indicate, cool. right? Yeah. yeah. It's bizarre, but if we can become aware of that and help ourselves be more comfortable with that, mm-hmm. then I, then I think, I think that could help us in a lot of ways. I think you're probably right that historical awareness is more important politically, but comfort with uncertainty is almost like a willingness to admit that you're wrong. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, I wouldn't even say that any of them are more important politically. I agree with you. I think comfort with uncertainty and complexity are um, critical to right now more than ever before. Absolutely. Um, because, you know, even though information is more technically accessible than ever, ever before, you can hop on the internet and look up just about anything. You can also go on the internet and post just about anything as just about anyone. Um, so there's a huge <laughs> amount of, of um, variety uh, in our information. And, and, and because of that, the curation, the burden of curation falls on the individual. Mm. The burden of evaluation falls on the individual. You don't have editors editing your news feed before it gets to you anymore. Um, you have that the burden and that sort of onus of responsibility has fallen on the individual. And, and the result of that has been, I think, because of this in, in inherent rejection of, of uncertainty and complexity, I think one of the results of that has been for us to silo up even more, to build these echo chambers even more tightly, mm-hmm. um, to where we're like, oh, well, this makes me feel safe and I'm certain and I know what to expect and I'm comfortable with that. So it's like you, we were given this huge landscape of, of access and options and information. And, and the result of that was that we picked and chose from among that what felt the good, that, that sort of act, confirmation bias and motivated reasoning and action. And we sheltered ourselves with it. Not in all cases. There's so many exceptions. But I think that that's a, it's a sort of a, it's almost a, a natural response if you think about it of course that's how we would react that this much uncertainty this much information this much variety is overwhelming and so yes i do think that that developing that comfort is extremely important and uh, one way that we do that i think there's a lot of ways that you can start to cultivate that one technique that we've uh sort of played with over the years is a term that we've come to call conceptual granularity uh, and we, what we mean by that is um, breaking an idea down into its component parts and being able to have different opinions on each of those subparts. Because right now, a lot of the big debates, uh, for example, are GMOs good or bad? Like that's such a reduction <laughs> of some lines of research that are more certain, some that are less certain, some that point in one direction, some that point in another. Like, what's your specific question? Hmm. And so I think that breaking things down to that level, what we found, we did this great activity um, throughout our workshops where we would have people pick an issue that they disagreed with a partner on. And they'd break this down. They'd create these little charts where they'd, we, we, it was almost like prime factorization of an idea. <laughs> you just kept breaking it down to its component parts. Uh, and then they'd get to a point, a level of granularity where they agreed. Mm-hmm. And that was the interesting thing. At the top level, they disagreed. But the further you broke it down, the more dependencies you had in there that in this situation, when this is true, when this is true, then this. 
um, the more space there was for agreement. And that doesn't mean it always happens. Of course, there's some things that are value-driven, that aren't evidence-driven. And there's a huge difference between the conversations that we have that are connected to science and evidence and that are connected to values. Hmm. Um, but, but nevertheless, I do think that fostering a comfort with uncertainty and complexity, I think that they go hand-in-hand, hand, um, is critical. And that there actually are pathways to doing that um, through culture building and community building more so than just knowledge sharing. Hmm. Yeah. And I, our psychological health, you know, it's so complicated. I find it so problematic how easy it is to, for, for people to point to a single cause, whether it's, I don't know, capitalism or medication or uh, GMOs, right? Like, I mean, you can, you can find all of these different things. um, But I do think that the, you, you know, you talk about community and having a robust community is not just good for like having good conversations, but it's also important for feeling well enough to be able to sit in spaces that are uncertain because uncertainty is a stressor Mm -hmm. as much as paying taxes is a stressor. And so if we take care of ourselves, then we can better, you know, better, better manage. Exactly. And it goes back. Right. And it goes back to this, this comment we were talking about with the, the sort of dangers of a society that, that um, values confidence above all else. You know, confidence is in many senses the, the antithesis of uncertainty. And I think that that's a, a really interesting point. And when we think about that show that we did, honestly, create, fostering a sort of microculture in that show when people walked into the door, bias, like you said, people don't want to be called biased. Like that's not something they're comfortable with. But when they walked through that door, we did a lot of work to create a little microculture in that space where everyone was wrong. Everyone was uncertain about many different things that we normalized being wrong from the beginning, starting with like, we set something up where we were like implanting false memories in people. (laughs) And we we were just playing little tricks on people, creating disequilibrium so that they were more open, more comfortable with being wrong. And people, that's the thing is like culture setting is really powerful uh, because people, once, like you said, once they're part of a group, a social group, in that case, they were part of a social setting where it was safe to be wrong. It was safe to admit that you didn't know. It was safe to look at something like we talked about um, dinosaurs a lot. We try to sometimes pick the things that are less identity driven um, to demonstrate points as a starting point because that opens people up. Dinosaurs are such an interesting one because I was so deeply attached to dinosaurs not having feathers. (laughs) And and people are, it's such an interesting example of how close, how, how strongly we attach and hold on to ideas and how hard it is for us to let go. Uh, and I think that it, uh, with dinosaurs, when we found out that they had, that many of them had feathers, there was such a funny, dramatic, like collective rejection of that change. And um, same with when Pluto was deplanetized, which I've heard now it's going back and forth. But anyway, that's the point is like, we have to be more comfortable with the fact not just that things can be uncertain in a certain point in time, but also that they, uh, they may change and, and be different levels of certain across time. Science as provisional, I think, is, is a critical piece. And knowledge as provisional. So zooming back out of just science, I think looking at knowledge and looking at ourselves as fluid and changing and, use, and that not um, minimizing how valuable it is to use what we know. You can do both. You can say, okay, this is the best that we know right now or we don't know very much about this right now and we may in the future, 
but I'm still going to use what we know and I'm going to be, remain open to change and, and open to adapting. I think that's really hard. I think it's also critical and can be done. Mm. Okay. We have to go. I don't want to, <laughs> but we have to go. That was really, uh, really, really smart. And thank you a lot. Unless there's anything pressing you want to say. Anything pressing. Um, you know, I love, I just love the, the themes of this conversation. I think they're so important. I love that you're doing this work to try and get, get these conversations out there. Um, I think it's, it's really part of what we're talking about. What you're doing is part of what we're talking about, which is to put more content, more information out in the world, more knowledge out in the world that is conducive to this other part of humanity that we have, we have to, we're totally capable of fostering and cultivating, which is the cooperative, which is the curious, mm -hmm. uh, which is the open and, and, um, and collaborative parts of humanity. And I think by putting out uh, more and more work and more and more ideas that support that, you're creating, you're helping to create that space where people feel more safe saying, you know, my, part of my identity is um, not necessarily fitting one of the existing sort of polarized boxes. And I think that that's really important. So thank you. Oh, that was really nice of you. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm trying to, well, anyway, I will, I will share more um, opinions and also allow myself to vacillate a lot more forthgoing, but I'm trying to be very psychologically accessible and digestible at this point in time. So I can get a little grainier as time goes on. Um, so people, where can people find your project and projects and how can they get more Sure. So you can learn more about the sort of design studio half of the plenary, which is where we do the event production and resource production at um, theplenary.co. So it's T-H-E-P-L-E-N-A-R-Y.co. Uh, and there is also a, a link on there to learn more about the community that we're building. Uh, so if you want to get more involved and you want to learn how can you, what's, what it, where do you start trying to shift some of the, the norms of your local community and um, we will have a lot of information for you there about how you can become um, part of that. And then uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Sastronaut <laughs> with two T's. S-A-S-T-R-O-N-A-U-T-T because someone took the one T version. Um, and the plenary does not yet have social media, but we will. And so when you go to the website, it'll be um, synced there soon. So, yeah. Okay. That's wonderful. And I'll put those in the show notes so you can don't not worry about the spelling. I'll worry about the spelling. Um, and you can find me as always at Stephanie Ruber at all of the Facebook Insta places, my website and the like. Uh, thank you for tuning in. I will see you. I will talk to you uh, in a few days with episode 8X. Um, thank you, Steph, for coming on and uh, take care.